I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We will continue today in our sermon series in the book of Acts, a series that will be ending very soon here. But for today, Acts chapter 25. I tend to map out uh, sermons four, six, eight weeks in advance, four, six, eight weeks at a time. And so it was about six weeks or so ago that I put onto the, the spreadsheet that Lee and I share the title for this sermon, Christians and the Civil Government. Wow, I did not realize what was going to happen between the time I wrote that and the time that we, get, we find ourselves today. And so I would love to run away from this and talk about anything else. And yet God's word is a God's word. It is what instructs us even in times like this. And so we're going to consider Acts 25. We're going to look at how Paul interacted with the government of his day and draw some principles that might offer some, some guidance and some comfort to us in these trying times. <clears throat> Hear now the word of God, Acts 25. And as I prepare to read it, I'll remind us, as I often do, that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And among other things, that means this. If we want to know what to trust in, what is actually lasting and eternal and trustworthy, and if we want to know how to live in this world in the meantime, we have to know this, the word of God. And so here now, Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Quick reminder of where we find ourselves. Paul has been locked up for two years. The man who had locked him up was a man named Felix. Felix had kept Paul in prison and continued to come back to Paul on a regular basis. Luke tells us in Acts 24, with his hand out, wanting a bribe from Paul. He was a corrupt leader and kept Paul in prison. He was himself called back to Rome to face charges, and so the government of Judea has been turned over to this man, Festus. We know very little about Festus. He did not serve very long. He seems to have died in office maybe a year after these events. And so uh, the secular uh, 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 historians have very little to say about him. He seems to have been a little less corrupt than, the, than his predecessor and a little less corrupt than his successor, but nevertheless, not a particularly able leader. We, uh, uh, we see here that there's this continuing desire by the Jewish leadership to, uh, uh, to harm Paul, to kill Paul. A little note there, if you're familiar with your Jewish history, you know that there was one high priest at a time, and yet this is like the third time now we have seen chief priests in the plural. What's going on with that? Well, it seems what, what the, 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 the chief priest that's actually uh, reigning at uh, uh, this time, oh my goodness, his name just went out of my head. Anyway, <laughs> I can't remember. The chief priest who's reigning at this time uh, 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 is not the guy we keep hearing about. We keep hearing about Ananias. 
appears what happened was happening is some of these uh, uh, high priests, when their term would end, when they would be out of office, would continue to exercise authority and influence, a, a sort of high priest emeritus standing. And that appears to be what's going on here. So when we see this chief priest in the plural, it appears that there are several of the former high priests that are gathered trying to oppose Paul and manipulate the system to be able to kill him. So right now, Paul's situation when it comes to government, whether it's the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities, not particularly positive or hopeful. Let's keep reading there in verse 6. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he, this is Festus, went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews had come, uh, I'm sorry, when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem uh, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. That need to be, you can't just make a claim, you got to be able to prove it. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, so he's less corrupt than Felix, but he's not objective and righteous and upstanding. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me and no one can give me up to the, sorry, no one can give me up to them, I appeal to Caesar. Quick comment on that. The word appeal in our legal system comes after a judgment has been rendered. But here we see Paul using it before Festus has rendered any ruling. And it, that was a pretty common practice then. It was basically a, a, a desire to change venues. It was a desire to change both the, the, the court and the judge. And as a Roman citizen, he had this right. And in fact, the emperors uh, 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 welcomed these appeals. They saw it as a way to expand their influence, to, to, have, to, to incur favor and to also punish their opponents. And so they liked as many cases coming before them as possible. So this was often a, a, a common practice. And we see him saying, basically, I want to go to a different trial. A different co- you said I could go to Jerusalem. I don't even want to go. I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I don't even want to stay here. I want to go to Rome. Okay, and that's what we see going on. So what comes next is technically not a trial, but more of a, of a, of a hearing through which Festus might gather some information. So let's continue. <clears throat> then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the the accused had uh, met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, 
They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserts to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate those questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed Excuse me. But when Paul uh, uh, had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Let me quickly explain what's going on here. Uh, uh, Agrippa is the last of the, the Herods. Uh, You know Herod the Great, his great-grandfather, builder of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, uh, killer of the babies in in Bethlehem at Christmas. You know uh, his grandfather, um, Herod Antipas. He was the one that presided over Jesus' trial and who beheaded John the Baptist. You know his father, Herod Agrippa I. He is the man who in Acts 12 ordered the beheading of of, uh, the apostle James. And now we have him. So this is a long line of pretty cruel uh, uh, men, kings. He is the last of the Herodian dynasty, the last man to bear the title king of the Jews, um, uh, in an an earthly sense, the last man to bear that title, uh, 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 king of the Jews. And he is himself a Jew, though he is a very secular Jew. He's a very worldly Jew. He is very pro-Roman. And the Romans use him something as a, of a, a Jewish expert, if you will. Just like our own government, we have undersecretaries who are experts in this country or that country or this dispute or that dispute. They had experts in different regions and different things. And, and Agrippa was the, the expert about Judaism and about Jews. So when Roman officials needed help taking care of and controlling and overseeing Judea, they would often turn to Agrippa to get some insight on how to deal with Jews. And so that's what we see Festus doing here. Let's continue. <clears throat> so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. When you can do nothing else, put on a show. And they entered the audience hall with the military uh, tri- uh, uh, tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people uh, petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed uh, to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable uh, uh, in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Next week, we will look at Acts 26, and we will consider the, the case as it played out before Agrippa. But we see here uh, Festus's motivation for doing this, so that he could report to Rome why he was sending this man up. Let's pray and ask God's guidance and understanding this as we uh, look to its uh, uh, lessons for us. Spirit of God, we are in a time of, of turmoil when it comes to our government. We are uncertain how to think about it, what to believe about it, what to hope for from it. We are confused by all that's going on. But we see here your servant, Paul. We see him standing before the governments of the world. We see him interacting with them. 
And in seeing this, we hope to draw some lessons which might comfort us, guide us, help us understand how we as Christians ought to behave, how we ought to live for you in this world, how we ought to glorify the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray this. Amen. Think about this past week, not just this past year and some of the civil issues that have occurred, but this past week. Astounding things played out. Laws were broken. They were flouted in egregious ways. And why? What was the motivation? Well, many of the the rioters, the, the insurrectionists in D.C., they went to the capital of our nation to encourage the lawmakers to themselves become lawbreakers. They said, ignore the Constitution, ignore all the courts, the 60 or more courts that have uh, 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 heard and dismissed any cases to overturn the election. We want you to ignore all of that. We want you to ignore the votes of the people. We want you to ignore the rulings from the individual states. And we want you to break the law because of what we want to have come out of this. Lawbreakers encouraging lawmakers to become lawbreakers. All incited by the chief executive whose job it is to enact the laws. It's a tough week to be thinking about government. It is a tough time to be looking at it. All of this in and amongst the political party that has for decades claimed to be the law and order party. But hey, the fix is on the way. In 10 days it'll all be better, right? Because we'll have a new political party in power, and they'll get everything fixed because they're going to be law keepers, even as they have threatened to stack the highest court in the country with justices who just move the goalpost, move the boundaries without regard for what's written on the page, and declare victory. It's a tough time to be thinking about our government and to wonder what we're going to get from it, and how we ought to act toward it, and how we ought to pray for it, and how we ought to to behave under it. But it could be worse. We could be living in Paul's day. We could be facing the government he's facing. Think about what Paul's up against right here. Festus is inept, unable to even just do the simplest things, looking for ways to please the Jews, willing to turn Paul over if it serves his political uh, 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 ambitions. Agrippa is immoral. You look at verse 13, look at the wording there. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Don't look at the notes at the bottom of your study Bible, just look at that verse and tell me, what is the relationship between Agrippa and Bernice? Well, they're husband and wife, aren't they? This is king and queen, isn't it? Luke could be forgiven for implying that. Because every supermarket tabloid in Judea back then was emblazoned with headlines about how the two of them were carrying on how the two of them were being seen at every social event together, arm in arm, how the two of them were living together in the same palace, how the two of them were always in each other's company and never in the company of other, any significant other. 
how the two of them were constantly showing public displays of affection in a backwoods Appalachian sort of way. Their brother and sister. Their brother and sister. And yet it's pretty clear from the historical records that they were living together as husband and wife. Bernice would eventually, to try to tamp down some of the rumors, would eventually go marry another man. That lasted about three years. She left him and went back to her brother Agrippa and lived with him. This really? The guy you want to have here in your case? This kind of immorality? Is this really the one that you want to have uh, in control over your life? There's no wisdom here. There's no discernment here. There's, there's no concern for right or wrong here. Is this the government you want over you? But at least you can appeal to Caesar. <clears throat> Got that to fall back on to. You know who Caesar is right now? You know who Caesar is at the time these things were happening? Just a man named Nero. Just a guy who history believes burned his own capital city intentionally so that he could clear some room to make some new buildings. Thousands of people died. Tens of thousands were left homeless because he wanted to clear some room to put up his own buildings. And when there was a political backlash, he blamed the Christians without evidence. And he began to cruelly execute them in unspeakable ways of phenomenal cruelty. This is the government Paul is under in this passage. An inept Festus, an immoral Agrippa, and an insane Nero. This is what he has to work with. So what are the principles we draw? What do we see happening here in Acts 25? That, and, it, and I'm not pretending this is an exhaustive list of every principle of the Bible about how we should interact with government. But what do we see here in Acts 25 that might guide us as we navigate our own difficult time interacting with government? Well, the first principle I think we need to recognize is this. Christians can and maybe should avail themselves of the government. It's okay to make use of the government. It's okay to appeal to Caesar. We've seen Paul doing this repeatedly. Navigating the system in order to to make good use of the government that's available to him. And why? Why is this the case? Flip forward just a couple of pages to Romans chapter 13... I guess more than a couple, but not that far. Go forward to Romans 13 in your Bible. Keep your finger in Acts 25, but, but we're going to keep our finger in Romans 13 as well. <clears throat> and consider uh, uh, verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13. What Paul, and, and this was written about two and a half years before the events of Acts 25 took place. Okay? So, not that far in Paul's memory. It's still fairly fresh. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Paul says, listen, one of the things we must recognize about civil government is that God ordains it. God puts it there, and it's for your good. It's okay Christian to use the government. It's okay. 
to interact with it and to glean from it the benefits the government ought to give. And Paul says it's there for your own good. Skip down to verse 6 there in Romans 13. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Paul says, hey, you're paying the taxes. You might as well get some of the benefit. For the authorities, listen to this word, are ministers of God attending to this very thing, your good. We don't use that term in our government, but many governments around the world do use that term. They have a prime minister. They have a minister of defense. They have a minister of, you know, this, that, and the other thing. We don't use that term, but here Paul says it's an appropriate term. They're ministers of God doing his work on the earth. We have already seen how, how God's sovereignty and the, the actions of humanity are intertwined in the book of Acts to bring about God's purposes. Paul spells it out very clearly there in Romans 13. Paul is willing to make an appeal to the civil courts. He's willing to avail himself of them to protect himself. If he's sent back to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. He knows this. It's okay. He doesn't stand there in the court and go, well, you know, I don't really, I, you know, I don't believe in big government, you know, so I don't really want to use the court. No! The court's there for your good. Government's there for your good, Paul says. We can use you know, there's an irony that's been going on for the last four chapters. I don't know if you've caught this. I didn't on my own catch it. One of, the re- one of the commentators I read pointed it out. But there is an irony here. The Jews have been constantly accusing Paul of civil crimes. He incites a riot. He's an insurrectionist. He's, he's causing all kinds of problems for you, you Roman, you governors. And then they turn right around and demand that he be tried in their court, the Sanhedrin. Meanwhile, Paul is saying, no, 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 I haven't done any civil crimes. Our dispute is a religious one. And he demands that the case be heard in the civil courts. Kind of backwards, isn't it? The Jews are saying it's a civil crime, but we should hear it in our religious court. Paul is saying it's a religious issue, but I want it in the civil courts. Paul is making use of the government. That it might be for his good and his protection. It's okay to make good use of the government. God put it there for us. You may have heard this one, but it bears retelling in my opinion. So the rains have been coming down from the latest storm. It's been raining uh, uh, just incredibly hard for a long time, and the waters now are beginning to rise. And so the police have been sent out into the neighborhoods to get on their bullhorns and to get every people, you must evacuate, please get out, please get out, hurry up, the floods are coming. And one man is there, and he refuses, and the police say to him, you've got to get out. And instead of packing up, he's hunkering down. And the police say, what is going on? He says, listen, officer, I am a Christian. I trust God. God will rescue me from this flood. Some hours pass and the waters rise. And out comes the, uh, uh, the, the civil police, uh, civil uh, uh, rescue efforts in a boat. The waters are now high enough in the neighborhood they can get around in a boat. And they find this man on the second floor of his house. And they say to him, we will rescue you. Come on down and you can get in our boat and we will take you to safety. He says, no need. I'm a Christian. I trust God. He will rescue me from the flood. That night, 
The waters have risen to such a point the man is now in his attic and has to climb out on the roof of his house. And a helicopter from the Coast Guard comes over and they get on the bullhorn and they say, we will drop a cable and we will rescue you. And he waves them off and he yells at them, no need, I'm a Christian, I trust God, he will rescue me. And in the night he drowns. And he's in heaven and he's before God and he says to God, I don't understand why didn't you rescue me? I trusted you. And God says, I sent the police, I sent the civil patrol, I sent a Coast Guard helicopter. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's okay to make use of the government. It's okay to to seek the police help, to expect the courts to defend us. If the time comes that something should happen, that, that things get so serious that this church would be involved in some, it's okay to go to the courts and appeal to them and say, protect us. One of the things we see happening here is a principle that says, hey, government was created by God, ordained by God for the protection of the people. It's okay to use government. Another principle we see here is that Christians should, should be subject to the government, subjects to the government. Go back there to Romans 13. I told you to keep your finger in it, but I didn't keep my own finger in it. Um, go back there to Romans 13 and look at verses 1 and 2. And it's going to re- echo the words we heard in our New Testament reading earlier from Peter. So we have the Apostle Peter saying it. Here we have Paul saying it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul subjects himself to these courts. He's availed himself of them, but in so doing, he turns right around and says, I will be subject to it. What did we see here? He says, if I'm guilty of anything deserving death, then I will die. Convict me, and I will go willingly. I'm going to leave myself in your hands, Festus. In the next chapter, when we look at this next week, we're going to see he turns to Agrippa and says, Agrippa, I know you know enough to judge this. It's not okay to to use the government and then turn around and thumb our nose at it. These are two sides of the same issue. It's okay to benefit from the government, but we also must be subject to the government. We must be uh, 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 submissive to those whom God has put in authority over us. It was the 21st century American writer, uh, Truman Capote, who said that one of the uh, uh, problems of living outside the law is that you forfeit the protection of the law. And his point was basically this, the two go together. If you want the good from government, you must also then give to government what is due the government. In Romans 13, Paul goes on to say, give taxes to whom taxes are due, give honor to whom honor is due. You know, one of the things that we've got to police in our own hearts and minds is how we think about our government and about the individuals who make it up. Do you... In your own mind, I know I struggle with this. Do you, in your own mind, give honor where honor is due? When you disagree with a policy, when you are yelling at your television because of what's on the news, do you do so in a way that honors the people God has ordained to be over us? 
Boy, that's tough, isn't it? That's tough. And yet if we did that in ourselves, doesn't mean we have to agree with their policy. doesn't mean we have to think they're right. But if we could learn to disagree with them while still respecting and honoring them, we would fulfill the calling that we have here. Give honor where honor is due. Uh, subject ourselves to the government. We see here Paul availing himself of the government. We see him subjecting himself to the government. He doesn't stand in the court and flout the authority of the judges. He says, no, I will submit myself. For a third principle of how Christians might think about interacting with the civil government, I want us to step back just a little bit from the text and not think so much about what Paul, or sorry, what Luke writes here, not what Luke has to say about what is happening, but rather consider why it's here. Why is Luke writing this? You say, well, because it happened. Yeah, but there's a lot of things that happened in the early church that Luke doesn't write about. And some people say, well, you know, Luke is present for this, so he writes in more detail. Yeah, but Luke continues to be present for a lot of things that happen after this, and he doesn't write about them. And the best evidence, we don't know this for certain, but the, the best evidence suggests that Luke probably wrote this account around A.D. 80. The events in the account cease in A.D. 62. So he's writing about 18 years after the book ends. Think about all the things we wish he had included. What happened to Peter? What happened to Paul? How did his trial before Nero... Did Paul get to share the gospel with Nero? Wouldn't you love to know the answer to that? Did Nero harden his heart? Did Nero persecute Christians because of what Paul said to him? Because Paul got in there and stood in front of Nero and said, you are a sinner answerable to God. And Nero said, there's no way you're telling me I'm answerable to anybody. Is that why Nero hated Christians? Come on, Luke, tell us. We'd love to know. But instead, Luke gives us yet another trial scene. I'll tell you what, as a preacher, I'm getting kind of tired of it. Enough already with the trial scenes. So why is it here? Many scholars have pointed out that there were three different courts that pronounced Jesus to be innocent. And then we're going to have three different courts pronounce Paul to be innocent. Three Roman courts, and this is one of them now. Festus has just said, I find nothing in this man that he deserves to die. And Luke is writing, if you'll recall, to a Roman official, most excellent Theophilus. It feels like forever ago when we first met Theophilus. But we're reminded here that Luke's writing to him. And what is Luke seeing here? Why is Luke pouring this out yet another time? Because he's trying to make the case to Theophilus. Look! Your own courts. Nero has been hunting Christians and killing them. Over the last 18 years, we have seen Christians thrown before the lions in the Colosseum. But I'm telling you, most excellent Theophilus, we don't deserve that. That's not justified. Look, your own courts have declared the innocence of this man, Paul. Luke is making the case. 
Christians are good citizens. They're not, they're not burning down Rome. They're not guilty of the things Nero's accused them of. They're not guilty of the things the other emperors have said. Look. Look at Paul. He's the guy. Everybody's saying he's the man that's causing all the problems. He's disrupting everything. He's set the whole world on fire. And Luke says to Theophilus, look, your own courts recognize that just wasn't the case. What we have here is Luke holding up Paul's interaction with the civil government as a testimony to Theophilus, as a witness to Theophilus, as a testimony to the, the peacefulness of Christians, to the, to the desire that they, would be, that they want to be good citizens in society. In fact, you know what's interesting? It's after all of this stuff happens, after he's held for two years for having done nothing wrong, after he's sent to Rome for having been found innocent, that Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and what does he tell Timothy? Pray for the authorities over you. Pray for your government officials. Paul doesn't hold animosity toward these officials, but rather he says, let's pray for them. One of the things that we ought to be thinking about as we interact with government, and we ought to be thinking about this with everything we do, is a testimony. It's going to be held up, and the way the Christian life is going to be judged by how we behave. And Luke holds up how Paul's behavior and holds it up to Theophilus and says, Look at this. These are good citizens, these are peace loving people. These are people who, can, who will submit, who have let go of their own pride because of the work of the Spirit in them are willing to submit to the authorities that are put over them. That's who Christians are, Luke says. And it's a testimony. As we interact with government, we should be willing to avail ourselves of the good things it offers. As we interact with government, we should be willing to subject ourselves to it. And as we interact with the government, we ought to recognize that our interactions are a testimony to others about the importance of authority in our lives as we pray for our leaders. Now, there is one other thing we've got to remember. There's one other thing we've got to see in all of this. We forget sometimes in the difficulty of subjecting ourselves to a government For me, it's manifest in the little things. You've heard me say it before. I hate speed limits. And it's hard for me to subject myself to that. And yet, what do we find God doing? I can't do it because of my pride. You can't tell me what to do. I'm Scott Shaw. You don't get to tell me how fast to drive. You know, the people at Indianapolis 500 just didn't recognize my skills or I'd have been driving there. So let me go as fast as I want. But the one who was not subject to any law subjected himself to human governments for our sake and our salvation. The one who created the governments put himself under them. He did that for us. He allowed corrupt judges to rule on his life. He allowed immoral, inept people to decide his earthly fate for 
our sake and for our salvation. And one of the things Luke is challenging us to do is to recognize that when we subject ourselves to the government, when we interact with it rightly, we have an opportunity to testify to what Jesus did for us. We have an opportunity to point when our neighbors say, how can you submit to that? It's easy. Jesus did it for me. Jesus did that for me. Doing that to testify to him, it's a joy. Piece of cake. When we interact with the government, let's remember how our Savior interacted with government. Let's remember how he ordained it for our good purpose. Let's remember how what we do is a testimony to him and to what he's done for us. And let's remember that everything we do ought to be to his glory and his praise. Let's pray. Lord, it is difficult to think about governments right now, and it's scary to think that we would subject ourselves to them. And yet, as we see Paul doing it, we are reminded of what he remembered. They're in your hands. They're in your control. You are the one at the helm. You are the one who has ordained governments over us. Give us the wisdom. Give us the grace. Give us the perseverance to joyfully do what Jesus did for us. To subject ourselves to the authorities of this world. To joyfully do this for the glory of his name to the praise of his saving power in our lives. We pray all of this because of him. Amen.